Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, the hip show where we do things like double intros. You never know what to expect here. What do you think, Patrick, my co-host? Yeah, well, we try to keep it spicy for you all, and uh, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if if that guy is the grandfather of the Dr. Pepper, it's the sweet one guy. That is an interesting theory. I wonder if uh, one of the previous shows on the station, Five Minute Myths, maybe that's something that they would want to cover. But overall, a great ad campaign that maybe foreshadows something we're going to talk about later in the episode. Can't make any promises. We like to keep you on your heels while you listen to the show. On your heels? Toes? We like to keep you on your toes as you listen to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale. As a reminder, the show is for entertainment purposes only. Anything we say on this show does not constitute financial advice. Do your own due diligence. Now, our intro, our first intro, does say that we try to keep you educated and informed about recent market events. And I think some of our show philosophy is that we think by exploring a lot of the historical events or explaining kind of more broad topics, you can understand any market event that happens, so we don't have to talk about it every single week. But I do think it's a responsibility to cover what we've seen in the market the last week. I don't know if you've been keeping track with performance of stocks after Q2 earnings or any of that. Uh, No, not a whole lot. Well, if Patrick was a more astute investor, (laughs) he would have noticed that the market hasn't been doing too hot recently. So I'm just going to do a quick little snippet that I read on Value Line this morning about why the stock market is the way it is. So the stock market was negative two days ago due to concerns about the Federal Reserve's higher for longer interest rate strategy, the potential shutdown of the U.S. government, and the prospect of a weaker economy. What does the higher for lower mean real quick? Uh, The higher for longer interest rate strategy. The idea is that the Fed is thinking about keeping the interest rates raised for a longer period of time than they initially expected. Inflation has been stubborn, which some people have said it's because, you know, the the U.S. labor market has been so resilient. But either way, investors are thinking that this is going to be a more prolonged high interest rate period, which, as we mentioned, when you're a company that's trying to get cheap access to the debt markets is not a very good thing. Okay. The potential shutdown of the U.S. government. This one's probably less about investing. And if you've listened to any of the politics shows, I'm sure they can give you a much more thorough explanation. But essentially, if a deal isn't reached by Sunday, I think it's at midnight, the non-essential functions of the U.S. government will shut down. We've seen government shutdowns in the past. There's a lot of things that are considered essential that I think could be argued aren't essential. So it's not going to be like the apocalypse. Even still, there will be negative impacts if you have, I think they're saying, you know, close to a million people temporarily out of work. Yeah, although they would compensate them after afterwards. Like that's what they've done historically. And then the weaker economy, part of this is driven by the higher oil prices that we've seen, I think. Crude oil went closer, over 100 bucks a barrel, global conflict, and the national debt. Interestingly enough, uh, Moody's said that if 
debt, the U.S. government shutdown, that they would have to consider downgrading the U.S. debt. I don't know if you remember that Fitch downgraded it a right. couple months ago and that sent a few waves through the market, not as much as people expected, yeah, though. We, we talked about that, um, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. And finally, another big story this week was that Amazon, we all know it, we all love it, uh, that, that two-day shipping, but basically they are getting sued by the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, which is responsible for the monopolistic practices, making sure that those aren't too toxic, I guess. And they assert that Amazon has been kind of forcing sellers that once they put their product on Amazon, trying to drive commerce through their site. So some examples of this is like if they don't pay for advertising on Amazon, Amazon is going to put their results much, much lower on search results, which you might say, oh, like if you're advertising, you should get higher on the search results than lower. But they're saying that like if you try to sell on other sites and not exclusively Amazon, that's another reason that you might kind of get blacklisted by the, the site. They also say assert that they're charging higher fees than are stated in its policies. Obviously, Amazon has come out and denied all these allegations, but it has cause some concern for other platforms like Amazon, smaller versions that are scared because they are doing similar things. Uh, so something to watch for the future. But interestingly enough, Amazon ties in to the episode topic today, which we're talking about conglomerates. It's a big scary word, but it's become an essential part of the American economy to have these type of businesses. So how would you describe a conglomerate, Patrick? I guess a conglomerate conglomerate is just one company that owns a bunch of different companies under them like they acquired them over over the years um so yeah well i won't say an example because we're about to get into them but yeah and, and that's exactly right like there's a lot of different strategies for running a business generally when you start out you're probably going to be pretty specialized if you're, you're going to be really good at making maybe a specific automotive part but as you grow that specific automotive part might only carry you so far, your main product has pretty much captured all the market share it has. So you have to go and buy out different companies or fundamentally shift your strategy. But there are different levels. Like some will stay closely tied to the industry that they originally started in. But there's others generally like investment holding companies that will really try to branch out and have two companies that are completely unrelated to each other that are under the same brand. So with that being said, Patrick, it's your time to shine to reveal what our first conglomerate is. Well, this might come as a big surprise, but today we're talking about Coca-Cola. And to start it off real quick, I wanted to play a little guessing game with George. Oh, guessing game. So we're going to put him to the test here. So I'm going to tell you three companies, and you're going to tell me if they are under Coca-Cola or not. Barks Root Beer. Okay. Coca-Cola or not? That feels like it's Coca-Cola, like the white cans of root beer. Yeah, I'm going with Coca-Cola. Okay. Dasani Water. I actually That is Coca-Cola. I know that. Okay. Yeah. And Minute Maid. I think that's Coca-Cola too. Three for three, George. You are yep. an astute investor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't consider uh, just knowing different drink brands a astute investor, but I'll take the praise where I can get it. Well, going into the history... It was Coca-Cola was made by Dr. John Pemberton in 1886 in Atlanta, where I'm from, actually. It was sold in pharmacies to begin with. Pemberton was actually a Confederate colonel in the Civil War, 
and he was wounded and as a painkiller he became addicted to morphine and so he decided to make this this drink as a sort of for medicinal purposes to sort of act as a substitute for this morphine one of its first acquisitions actually getting into the conglomerate side of things was the german company fanta that was in 1946 um, which is interesting because the German company in one year after World War II, um, and then they joined the juice market in 1960. Um, that, that's when they bought Minute Maid. And then for one more of their many acquisitions, they bought Columbia Pictures for $750 million in 1982 because they thought that the volatility of the entertainment industry would supplement the slow, steady growth of Coca-Cola. So at that point, they really looked to branch out to have like super diversity uh, away from the drink industry. That's fascinating. Well, I don't know if diversity is the word for it because that's the only, I think that's the only non-beverage brand that they've ever bought. Like they, okay, they don't own Columbia anymore. Yeah. Um, They just own beverage companies. Yeah. So I don't know if it's diversity, if they just have two um, sort of industries in there, but uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a different move for sure. So, you know, we talk about diversification as a a solid investing principle, and that's sort of how a conglomerate works, I would say. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically just a diversification in the companies under an umbrella. Yeah, a a lot of people try to function like that, a lot of companies. And I would think Coke, everyone has to drink something, you know, every single day. So by having, you said root beer, they have Coca-Cola, obviously, water and juices, seems like it covers what people might drink on a daily basis. I don't know. So there's, you know, lots of different companies and industries under Berkshire Hathaway, for example. And, you know, Coca-Cola only has beverage brands. Yeah, there's always going to be a demand for beverage, but there might not always be a demand for soda. And so that's part of the reason why they want to diversify within this industry. Something to look at is soda isn't very popular in Japan, actually. Coke doesn't sell well there. But Japan is the highest consuming nation of Georgia brand coffee, which is owned by Coke. Really? And so that's how they get into other markets that for some reason don't drink soda. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I wonder too, just because the reason we kind of played the, the ad at the beginning is a lot of Coke's brand is built around like nostalgia. Because in blind taste tests, Coca-Cola, Pepsi... They're not really that distinguishable from generic brands, but people have a strong brand association with drinking Cokes, and I wonder if that's starting to fade at all or if that will ever fade and they'll have to go to new products. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that because even within the company itself, there's still nostalgia and almost product loyalty within the brand because in the 1980s, Coca-Cola released new Coke, yeah. Because they did a blind taste test for their customers, and the customers said that this new Coke, in quotes, uh, what tasted better than what the original one was. And then they brought in this new Coke, and even though it tasted better to some, they still just like liked the original more just because it was the Coke. Probably the worst disaster in the company's history. But going back to the conglomerate idea, so yeah, this strategy of having a narrow but diversified focus keeps demand high for Coca-Cola, and that's how they can you know, penetrate different markets um, like they do in Japan with Georgia brand coffee. And 
you mentioned case study, and I wanted to take an, a look at this story real quick uh, that happened a few years ago. There is this, uh, we're getting back into the soccer, I know, I apologize. <laughs> but there's this soccer tournament, a European soccer tournament that happens every four years. And in 2021, Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, one of the most famous players in the world, has like, I think we said the second second most number of Instagram followers. And so he, Ronaldo was doing an interview for a game and there were some Coke bottles used as a prop as, you know, like a sponsorship thing. But Ronaldo is like super, super fit and really cares about what he puts in his body. And he yeah. does not drink soda, alcohol, anything that's bad for him pretty much. And so he removed, he put aside these two Coke bottles that were on the screen so we wouldn't be affiliated with them. And he like lifted up a, a bottle of water and says, agua. And so right after that, Coke lost $4 billion in market value. Yeah, and we always talk about on this show, like, causation versus association. I'm guessing that at least a small part of that was probably due to, like, just a natural downtrend in the market, because $4 billion is a crazy amount. But even still, to have the number one or number two athlete on the planet diss your brand. Yeah, and some say this wasn't due to Ronaldo because the stock price, um, it only dropped 1.6%. Um, but that still represents a lot when you have a big company. It was a little bit on the downturn right before. So some say it wasn't due to him at all, or maybe just a little bit. If it was, you know, why wouldn't this affect Coke much? So even if people totally stopped buying Coca-Cola bottles, they probably wouldn't think to stop buying Minute Maids, Barks Root Beer, Dasani Water, all those other brands that Coke owns, because they have that diversity um, profile within their that overarching brand of Coca-Cola that even though, you know, Coca-Cola isn't is their number one selling product, it, it's only under like thirty percent, I think, of total Coca-Cola sales is Coke itself. Yeah. Well that's funny you bring that up too because obviously the summer we had the Bud Light boycott. And it was kind of funny because a lot of people did in fact boycott that, but there were other products that Anheuser-Busch, the parent company of that conglomerate, also made that people weren't boycotting either. Mm -hmm. So yeah, well, the, the brand Bud Light was doing a lot worse over the summer, and it did affect Anheuser-Busch. I don't want to make it sound like it didn't because it did affect the stock price. But at the same time, people don't realize how many brands these conglomerates own. Yeah, and if someone you know only drank Coke and then they're a super huge Ronaldo fan, and they decide to totally stop drinking Coke, um, They there's a chance that they might just totally switch to another one of the brands that um, Coca-Cola owns, uh, like like Barks Root Beer. And it would, only, it would probably only really hurt the company overall if maybe they just, like, totally switched to just Pepsi products. Yeah. So, you know, in this scenario, a wise investor would only sell their Coca-Cola stock after the incident because they think Ronaldo's act would actually decrease the Coca-Cola sales long term or if the incident represented the actual value of the company to be lower than the market capitalization or share price, what 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 those said it was worth. Yeah, or if it affected growth, they don't think people in the future are going to buy Coca-Cola or a new generation of consumers won't because of that. It is very interesting how a company like Coca-Cola tries to protect their brand image so strongly. And so something like that can shake that. A company that you might not have heard of or doesn't really have a strong brand image would have to be Berkshire Hathaway. The company owns everything from Geico to Oriental Trading, Clayton Homes, Duracell Batteries, Seize Candy, and NetJets. 
So they have companies that do everything from aircraft to insurance to knickknacks to home building. And we've talked about Warren Buffett's legendary status as an investor, which shouldn't be overlooked. He's done very well with public companies actually investing in Coca-Cola in the 90s, which was a great long-term bet for him. But what often gets overlooked is the private companies that he has and that he's acquired. And I think more focus should be put on those as they make up over half of Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio. So why are there so many of these diversified companies in his portfolio? Number one, he's a value investor. And a value investor is less concerned about the trends of the day or what industries maybe even are hot, but rather what he can get cheaply, what he can get on sale. Number two, he's a buy and hold investor. He wants to buy, hold, do nothing, run these companies forever. And number three, there's a lot of synergies of having a conglomerate structure. In some cases, it can be distracting. If you have a a jet company along with a food company and management doesn't understand both of those areas, there can be a lot of confusion, a lot of unneeded bureaucracy. However, with a company like Coca-Cola, you can share bottlers among each other. You can contract out more sugar or other products in bulk. So it's, it's very handy for that. For Berkshire, they're able to share things like consulting data. So that could be like economic forecasts among those companies, consulting, or even physical resources helping each other out there. Now, I want to talk about the biggest synergy, though, and that's got to be insurance. And I can tell you're so excited, Patrick, because we love insurance, right? Ever since we were babies. No, it's not the most exciting topic, but I think once you understand how the business actually works, it is pretty exciting in the world of investing. So here's a normal problem. Let's say I own a drink company, a soft drink company, and I think it would be cool to expand my business and buy a bottled water company. In a lot of cases, the only time that bottled water company is going to be cheap is because there's a downturn in the drink market. Because of that, I'm probably losing out on sales. My company is also cheap, so I can't get easy debt. My revenues aren't as strong, so I can't buy another company in my industry when it's cheap. Conversely, if I have the money to buy other companies because my company is doing really well, I probably also can't buy a company in the drink industry because they're also doing really well. It's going to be much more expensive. So it seems like you always have that problem. Well, the cool thing about insurance companies is that they give you consistent cash flow. No matter the economy, no matter the ups and downs in the market, people buy insurance. In a lot of states, it's mandated that you have auto insurance. I don't know, healthcare or casualty insurance. But people are going to have insurance. They need that security. And as long as you write good insurance policies, you're probably going to make two to four cents of gross profit for each dollar that you make in revenue, which isn't exceptional. And those are the good insurance companies. Those are the very profitable insurance companies. That's probably a little idealistic even. However, float is probably the most valuable thing. And it's like interest-free loans. Now this kind of gets in the weeds a little. So Patrick, I want you to stop me if I ever uh, start rambling. Okay. With enough policies and diversified policies. So I have them all around the country. I might know that on average, when someone pays me $100 in premiums, I can expect that I have to pay $99 to them in three years on average. Wait, why 99 in three years? So each person, you're not going to pay out $99 in three years. In California, there might be a forest fire. So I have to pay out $300 in that first year. But I might also do insurance in Ohio. 
where I don't have to pay out anything for 10 years. And if you do that with like enough different geographical regions, you can diversify. And so you can make a model that, okay, on average, all the money I take in, I'm going to pay out most of it in like a three-year cycle. Not all of it, but most of it. Okay. Now, for that three years, I essentially have a pool of money that I can do whatever I want with. It's a little dangerous because if I lose all that money, I have to pay it out in three years and then I'm kind of, I messed up. But I can do whatever I want for that three years if I have good models, if I know what I'm doing. When companies get really cheap because of a downturn, that's the best time to buy them. Right. And that's what Buffett's able to do is because he's getting this pile of insurance money no matter what, he can plug those into new companies, acquiring new companies. And then over the long term, when those companies start making him a lot of money, he can... Pay back the loans? Yes, because he depleted that pool of money that he had to pay out in premiums to buy new companies. When he buys new companies, they make him money. Then he can refill that pool of money. So when it comes time to pay out people, he's able to do so. Okay. And in that way, he's able to grow Berkshire Hathaway to include more companies, to write more insurance policies. And he's being able to do this without taking on really debt at, you know, high interest rates. But that's about all the time we have. Is there anything else you want to say, Patrick? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, we thank you for listening this week. As a reminder, all our past radio shows can be found on Hillsdale's Transistor page or on X at Wall Street Pod. Thank you for listening to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. <laughs>